the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of night. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the lights of life. God's holy word stands today as the only infallible, inerrant guide for a confused and decaying world. On this program, it is clearly presented to you in language related to the troublesome questions and problems of our times. Its answers have the integrity and authority of God's everlasting truth. You'll enjoy its candor and clarity as presented now by our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of East the Bible Stands. Today I'd like to begin a study that I call Speaking with Tongues. I think this study is vital to our times. I hope that each of you, within the sound of my voice, will give me your undivided attention as I present this entire series of messages. I also hope that each of you will understand that my intent is not to stir up controversy, but rather to simply see what God's Word has to say about a controversial subject. One of the more controversial and disputed issues of our day is a widespread movement toward speaking with tongues. There is a wide divergence of opinion within the professing church on the validity, the propriety, and the necessity of this so-called charismatic gift in the lives of Christians today. The purpose of this study is to consider the biblical teachings on tongues with all due respect to the individuals who are involved in what has become known as the charismatic movement. Many of the people involved are true Christians whose lives radiate the glory of God. It's not my purpose to deal with the extreme beliefs and practices of some within this movement. Instead, my purpose is to study those scriptures on which the movement is based and to discover the true teaching of God's Word. This brings up issues that are basic to the so-called charismatic movement as a whole. To open this first message of the series, let me read the Lord's Commission as it's recorded in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Chronologically, this is the first place in Scripture where the sign of tongues is mentioned. This reference is a part of the Lord's great commission to his apostles. The Lord's commission, as stated in verse 15, literally says, Having gone into all the world, proclaim the glad tidings to all the creation. This is followed first by the results to be anticipated from such preaching, and then by a statement of certain sign gifts, that shall accompany these that believe. Because this record, accredited to the evangelist Mark, couples the Lord's commission to certain sign gifts, some feel that the Lord was teaching a continuous accompaniment of sign gifts to those who believe all down through this age. The Lord said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that disbelieves shall be condemned or judged. And these signs shall follow those that believed. In my name, demons they shall cast out. With new tongues they shall speak. Serpents they shall take up. And if anything deadly they drink, in no wise them shall it injure. Upon the infirm they shall lay hands, and they shall be well. Those who follow the charismatic doctrine believe they find the authority for their belief that speaking in tongues is a necessary sign of salvation in these words that came from the Lord's own mouth. Did he not say, And these signs shall follow those that believe, with new tongues they shall speak? First, we should note that the Lord's emphasis is not upon the sign gifts, but rather on the preaching of the gospel unto the entire creation. That which is said beyond the commission itself is simply given to instruct those who were listening as to what they could expect as a result of their preaching. The fact that Mark has joined the instruction concerning sign gifts to the commission itself should not be interpreted as an attempt to make these things inseparable, but rather an attempt to be brief in compiling his record of the Lord's post-resurrection instructions. 
When we compare the four gospel records, we find the Great Commission was not given at one time only, but on several occasions. In each instance, there are differences that are of deep interest. In Mark's record, the Lord set forth his program of world evangelization in no uncertain terms, preached the gospel to every creature. Those who were listening to the Lord's words were to carry the good news of an accomplished redemption, not only to Israel, to whom the message of the kingdom had been largely confined during the Lord's earthly ministry, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as was said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. But now it was to go into all the world. Every barrier was to be thrown down that the river of grace might flow out to all. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Those who received the message in faith were to witness to it by being baptized, thus openly declaring themselves to be his disciples. There was no saving virtue in the ordinance itself, but it was to be the expression of subjection to Christ. Those who refused to believe would be judged. The Greek word translated damned means condemned or judged. Note that he did not say, he that is not baptized shall be judged. These signs shall follow them that believe them that are believing. The Lord was speaking to his apostles. They were the them that presently believe. The apostle Paul spoke of these specific signs later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Note that Paul calls these specific signs the signs of an apostle. These miraculous powers were given to the authoritative messengers in order to accredit them as Christ's representatives. Luke provides further testimony of this in the book of Acts. Grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Luke further states, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. These signs were not displayed by any who did not believe. Matthew's record insists that, even among the apostles, some doubted. It's a mistake to suppose that the signs followed those who believed the messengers. This is not the thought of the Lord's words. To some, indeed, who themselves became witnesses publicly, such gifts were granted. Testimony to this is given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-11. through 11. We'll consider this record in a later message. For the present, it's sufficient to say that these non-apostolic spiritual manifestations were according to the sovereign will of God. In the Lord's mention of the sign of tongues, he does not separate this particular spiritual manifestation from three other significant apostolic signs. First, in my name they will cast out demons. Second, snakes they will pick up. Third, and if they drink anything deadly, it will positively not harm them. Fourth, upon the sick they will lay hands and they will recover. The Lord placed no more emphasis upon the sign of tongues than he did upon these other four signs. If the sign of tongues was meant for all who believe throughout this age, then the signs of casting out demons, taking up snakes, drinking poisons without harm, and laying hands on the sick to heal them are also for all who believe in this age. Only a small fraction of those who teach that the Lord commissioned all believers of this age to speak with tongues also teach that he commissioned all believers to take up serpents and to drink poison without harm. If one is to contend that the commission to speak with tongues and to lay hands upon the sick and heal them is for all believers of this age, then he cannot separate the other spiritual manifestations listed from these two. The Lord's words concerning the one apply to all. The word translated tongues is the Greek glossaeus. This is a plural form of the word glossa, which refers both to the tongue as an organ of the body and to the language spoken with the aid of that organ. This is the word from which we get our English glossary, which means a word list or a vocabulary. The Greek glossa has no reference to exotic utterances or to languages not known to man. The word refers to a spoken language of man, to a human tongue. The apostles who heard this commission were men, most of them, who had never been out of Palestine. 
the only bit of experience of evangelizing work that they had encountered had been gained within the limits of Palestine, which included Galilee. They knew no language except their own Aramaic dialect and the Koine Greek. It was to these men, so lacking in education and experience, that Christ gave this commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. With their meager and, as it seemed, hopelessly inadequate equipment, they were to set about the gigantic task of evangelizing the world. But Christ himself supplied the equipment. He was to give them the language skills that they needed, not through a learning process, but through a gift of the Spirit. They shall speak with new, new in quality, or of a different character, tongues, human languages. Thus the experience of speaking in tongues was not only a sign gift, but also a highly practical ability to speak in understandable terms to individuals whose languages these men had never had the opportunity to learn. There was and is purpose behind all of the Spirit's miraculous gifts. We're aware that present scholarship presents strong evidence that Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20 is a spurious addition to Mark's gospel. The oldest Greek manuscripts end abruptly with Mark chapter 16 and verse 8. The continuing verses may have been added as a commentary by a later uninspired author. This is a controversial point. However, whether a genuine part of Mark's gospel or not, verses 15 through 18 do not teach that the Lord commissioned all believers of this age to manifest the spiritual gift of tongues. The Lord's words convey that gift only to the apostles who believed, that is, to those who doubted not. In bestowing this gift, the Lord was providing practical means for carrying out His great commission. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue with a study of our presentation on speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've tuned into this broadcast because we're continuing our study of one of today's most controversial subjects, speaking with tongues. On the last broadcast, we discussed the Lord's promise of the sign gifts to the apostles that's recorded as a part of the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16. These gifts were to include an ability to speak in languages never learned so that the apostles would be able to carry out the Lord's instructions to preach the gospel to every creature. The sign gifts of Mark chapter 16 were promised only to the apostles, not to all those who believed the apostles' message. Today, I would like to begin to look at how the sign gift promise was fulfilled and how the gifts were used in the earliest days of Christian evangelism. Let's open today's message by reading Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The scene was on the Mount of Olives, just before the Lord's ascension to heaven at the end of his 40-day post-resurrection ministry. In spite of the marvelous things they had observed during the 40-day period, the disciples were still confused as to God's plan and purpose and the future part they would play in that program. They were still looking for the fulfillment of God's earthly plan for Israel, the establishment of Messiah's millennial kingdom. They realized that the Lord was about to depart, but they still held their hopes for the immediate establishment of the earthly kingdom. This prompted the question of verse 6, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They knew that the kingdom was to be restored in God's own time. They had failed to understand the significance of the Lord's great commission and its relationship to the present age. Their question does not concern the reality of the restoration, only the time period. Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? The Lord's reply to them also concerned the time. It is not for you to know the times, chronologies, or the seasons, times, which the Father hath put in his own power, in his own authority. The Lord did not deny that the kingdom was to be restored. 
He simply told his questioners that the Father had not revealed to man the exact time of this restoration. The restoration will come, but it will come according to the Father's chronologies and times, which he has kept secret in his own authority. It was after the Lord had answered their direct question that he turned their attention to the commission of the church for this age. But ye shall receive power, dynamite, supernatural energy, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The disciples at that moment were not equipped to begin their preaching the gospel of God's grace. It was first necessary for another person of God to come into the earthly sphere to take up residence in their hearts and empower them for the great work of this age. This was to happen not many days hence. A new age was to begin, and that age was to postpone the final restoration of the earthly kingdom to Israel. That age was to be initiated by the fulfillment of another event on Israel's prophetic calendar. That event was the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, only ten days in the future. He would empower the disciples to begin the spread of the gospel for this present parenthetical age. It's of great significance that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his answer to the disciples, revealed that God has an orderly plan for the expanding witness of his saving grace. He told those standing with him there on the Mount of Olives that their witness was to begin in Jerusalem and then expand outward as an ever-widening circle, sequentially crossing all national and cultural boundaries. This expanding witness can be pictured as a stone thrown into a placid pond. The stone strikes at Jerusalem, and the ripple begins at this point as an expanding circle, eventually moving across the entire surface. All the world was to be covered, but in proper sequential order. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both sequentially inclusive of all that follows, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The first point of witness is in the city of Jerusalem. There the stone will strike by the spectacular arrival of God the Holy Spirit for his special empowering ministry of this age. That witness will expand from Jerusalem into the surrounding countryside of Judea. From there it will cross the next boundary which will carry that witness into Samaria. The Samaritans were a mixed race of people, part Jewish and part Syrian. The gospel was to go to the Jew first, but after that to his first cousin, the Samaritan. After the covering of this mixed race of Jewish Gentiles, then the witness was to cross another boundary unto the uttermost part of the earth. The crossing of this final boundary would carry the message of God's grace to the Gentiles and would break down the final dividing wall that separated the peoples of the world. The crossing of that boundary would also make it possible to reach one additional boundary that was inaccessible until evangelization of the Gentiles had begun. That final boundary, separating the Jews in dispersion from their homeland and from the recent earth-shaking events in that land, would be broken down last. Thus, the gospel would expand to all classes of people throughout the earth. It would be expected that God would provide spiritual signs at the point where the expanding witness crossed each boundary. One of the major purposes for the sign gifts, mentioned in conjunction with the Lord's commission to the apostles in Mark chapter 16, was to highlight these boundary crossings. The book of Acts contains the record of the way that God used miraculous gifts to mark the one-time-only event of bringing a new group under the influence of the evangel. The sign gift of tongues is prominent at four points in the record of early church expansion as contained in the book of Acts. Let's observe how God used these signs as the witness began at Jerusalem, expanded to the Samaritans, and moved outward to the Gentiles, and finally to the dispersed disciples of John the Baptist, who had previously not heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first usage of these signs in the earth came on the day of Pentecost. God's record is contained in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Here is the exact literal translation of Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And during the accomplishing of the day of Pentecost, they were all with one accord in the same place. The descriptive Greek word that our English version brings out as was fully come actually refers to accomplishing or fulfilling. The reference is to the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. 
The record to follow describes the fulfillment of a definite prophecy concerning God's redemptive program for mankind. The coming of God's Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was a one-time only event, and it was never to be repeated. There was one incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was one sacrificial death on the cross at Calvary. There was one bodily resurrection of our Lord from the tomb. There was one ascension of the Lord back to heaven. And there was one coming of the Holy Spirit of God for his special indwelling ministry in the church of this age. In John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ had said that the Father would send the Comforter, and he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. He also said, Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem, until you be endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit of God was to descend to earth to introduce a new age, a new dispensation. God had definitely settled the time when that new age was to begin. It was to begin on the Jewish day of Pentecost in the year of our Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Just what do we mean by the term Pentecost? For a definition, we need to turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. This chapter outlines the prime events of Israel's ecclesiastical year and the great festivals that belong to it. The first of these events was the Passover in the spring. This sacred holiday occurred on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Passover predicted the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Passover came, that is the one appointed fulfillment of Passover, he died. His death was a one-time only event. Continuing in Leviticus chapter 23, we find that on the day after the seventh day Sabbath following Passover, the Israelites were to bring a sheaf of the firstfruits. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul tells us, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. So, just as Passover predicted the death of Christ, the firstfruits predicted his glorious resurrection as the firstborn from the dead. Then, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, we read, Ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meal offering unto the Lord. Note, fifty days had to elapse from the offering of the firstfruits until the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost really means the fiftieth day. God had ordained that this feast should be observed in Israel as the type of the beginning of a new dispensation. This was a new dispensation when a new meal offering would be offered to the Lord. Ye shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves, bacon with leaven. The fulfillment of Pentecost was also a one-time only event on God's prophetic calendar. My time for today is almost gone. We'll consider the events at Pentecost as we continue our study of the gift of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of the controversial subject, speaking with tongues. I'm not bringing this series of messages to stir up controversy, but rather to present the biblical teaching on this subject to those who've been confused by the current so-called charismatic movement. Let's open this third message of the series by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as a fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? 
We're considering the expanding circle of witness to his gospel that was commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ just before his ascension from the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The origin of this circle was to be in Jerusalem, and it was to expand to outward to all Judea and to all Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The event that started the expanding circle happened at Jerusalem at the one-time-only fulfillment of one of the feast days of Leviticus chapter 23. Beginning with Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, we have Pentecost. This is the inspired record of the coming of another person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in the church on earth and to empower believers to carry the message of grace everywhere. This was a pre-known and pre-planned event in the heart of God before the creation of the universe. It was a predicted event on God's divine calendar, just as was the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection and ascension. And during the accomplishing of the day of Pentecost, they were all with one accord in the same place. When that historical day, which God had selected for the type of Pentecost to be fulfilled, had come, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, in response to his commandment, were all with one accord and were gathered together in one place. Just where was that one place? Many have assumed that the gathering place was in that upper room of the house of the mother of John Mark where the 120 disciples often gathered for prayer. However, Scripture infers that it was one of the porches of the temple. In the closing two verses of Luke's Gospel, we're told, And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. It was within the temple that they were gathered when that day came for the accomplishing of the day of Pentecost. Only the fact that the disciples were gathered within the temple could definitely account for the presence of the great multitude of others who heard and saw all that was going on. The temple was a public place. It was the appropriate place for the coming of the third person of the Godhead for his special indwelling ministry of this age. The temple was the house of God in the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ made his appearance in the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit of God also made his appearance in the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry. They were all with one accord in the same place, and came suddenly out of the heaven a sound as of a violent breath rushing, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Suddenly something happened. A sound was heard from heaven. That sound was more than a mighty wind. The literal rendering of this description says that it was a violent, impetuous breath or blowing. This mighty, rushing, blowing wind filled the house where they were sitting. It all came to pass in a short span of time. The Lord Jesus Christ had used wind as a type of the Holy Spirit in speaking of the new birth. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. To these believers gathered in the temple came the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. The Holy Spirit could not be seen, but his presence could be felt and heard. God provided the sign of the rushing mighty wind as an audible indication of the special presence of his Holy Spirit. We should not find it unusual that God chose to do this. Signs were provided to show the coming of God's presence at the first dedication of Solomon's temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2, we read that the cloud, the sign of Jehovah's presence, filled the whole house after the sacrifices had been brought. But there at Pentecost, in Herod's temple, a greater event was to occur than that which took place at the dedication of the great temple of Solomon. The sound of the rushing mighty wind filled the whole house in which the believers were gathered. This was done to signify that from now on there would be a more noble building on this earth. That building was to be the church of this age, the habitation of God through his Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul describes this building in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. In whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Besides this outward, audible sign, there was also a visible sign that the Holy Spirit had come, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven, divided, tongues of fire, and sat upon each one of them. That visible phenomenon that had the appearance of fire filled the entire house. 
This indicated that the Holy Spirit's abode would be in the church. However, in addition to the filling of the whole house, the parted tongues as a fire sat upon each believer there. This testified to the fact that every one of the company had received him. There was no difference among them. Peter, John, and James, and the other apostles did not receive more of him than the youngest and weakest of all those believers. The person of the Holy Spirit, not a power or an influence given by measure, had filled each and every believer. He, the Holy Spirit, came as the gift of God. The observers looked on in amazement. This that looked like fire was not real fire. It was simply the visible manifestation of the descent of God's Holy Spirit. Just as when the Lord Jesus Christ came up from his baptism in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit was seen descending like a dove and lighting upon him, so now tongues, like as a fire, were seen resting upon the heads of all the gathered disciples. These parted tongues, like as a fire, had special meaning. They were symbols of the diverse languages in which testimony concerning Christ and the gospel was now to go forth. The hour had come when God was to temporarily lift from men the curse of Babel. At Babel, God so confounded and divided the one language that men spoke that they found themselves speaking in many languages. Now the Holy Spirit had come with power to enable his messengers to witness in many tongues to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word used to designate the cloven, divided tongues of fire in verse 3 is glossi. This is the same word that's used to describe the languages that the disciples began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance in verse 4. Thus the cloven tongues of fire were used as a visible symbol of the multiple languages that were about to be distributed to those who believe. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them to utter forth. This was a third sign. Those present were immediately all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as God's Spirit gave them the supernatural ability to do so. Thus we have three great signs the mighty rushing wind, the parted tongues as a fire, and the speaking in other tongues. This third sign was the result of the Holy Spirit's inward presence in those who spoke forth. There was wind, there was fire, and there were voices. These signs are not unique to God's redemptive program for mankind. The law at Sinai was given under some of those accompanying signs. These signs are also present in association with other appearances of God in the Old Testament. For instance, in the history of Elijah, we have the tempest, the fire, and the still small voice, all that stand out in prominence. These were all signs that a divine person, God the Holy Spirit, had come to Elijah. There's a declaration in the Jewish Talmud that when God gave the law from Sinai, the voice of God parted into seven voices. Each of those seven voices again parted into different voices so that God heralded the law in 70 different tongues heard by all the nations of the earth. To summarize, the coming of the Holy Spirit on that historic day, during the accomplishing of the day of Pentecost, was accompanied by three signs. There was the audible sign of the sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Then there was the visible sign that appeared unto them as cloven tongues, like as a fire, and set upon each of them. Finally, it was the responsive sign as they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All three of these signs accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit as he took up his abode in the earth for his special ministry in this present age. Once again, my time is almost gone. We'll consider other historical appearances of the sign gift of tongues as recorded in the book of Acts on the next broadcast as we continue this study of the phenomenon of speaking with tongues. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to visit with you by radio with another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing with our study on the subject, Speaking with Tongues. This study is an evaluation of those sections of Scripture that deal with that controversial doctrine. 
We're currently in the book of Acts, considering those historical events when the sign gift of tongues played an important part in the expanding circle of witness for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's open this fourth message of the series by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost for two purposes. First, he came to usher in the new age, to baptize into one body all believers. The question is often asked, were these believers not the children of God prior to this event? The answer is, yes, they were. But before the day of Pentecost, they were just so many individual units. But now, when the Spirit of God came for his special ministry of this age, they were all baptized into one spirit, one body. More than that, they were empowered for the testimony to the life-giving power of the gospel. Second, the Holy Spirit had come to take the things of Christ and to reveal to believers the things of God. He had come to vitalize them as they went forth to proclaim the gospel to others. This was for all peoples everywhere. There's not a hint here that this testimony is to be confined just to Israel. God gave these Jewish disciples power to present the word in the languages of all the people who had come to Jerusalem to keep the feast of the Lord. What was the purpose of this sign gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost? We read in verses 5 and 6, Now in Jerusalem were dwelling Jews, pious men from every nation of those under the heaven. But the rumor of this having arisen, the multitude came together and were confounded, because each one heard in his own language them speaking. With these two verses, we find the beginning of the story of the church's witnessing to the power of the gospel. In obedience to the Lord's commandment, the witnessing began in Jerusalem. It began on the day of Pentecost, and it was made possible by a miracle from God. On this day, the Spirit of God allowed men to overcome God's judgment at Babel. Power was given for the believer to witness to the things of Christ in languages that they had never learned. The obstacle of the multiple languages in the earth was temporarily overcome, so that those present there on the day of the accomplishing of Pentecost might hear and understand the message of life. This great miracle was given as a sign but it was also given for its practical value of making known the testimony of Christ so that all present might fully understand. Some have raised the question as to whether the miracle was in the disciples speaking different languages or was the miracle in the ears of the hearers so that the apostles all spoke in their native Galilean tongue but the people heard in their own languages. There should be no question concerning this point. The miracle was in the speaking of the disciples. Verse 4 plainly answers any questions of this nature. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Greek word for tongues in verse 4 is glosseus, the general word for languages. In verse 6, we're told that the hearers were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Here, the Greek word translated language is dialecto. This is the word from which we get our English word dialect. The Greek and the English words mean the same thing. Not only were the disciples speaking new languages, but they were speaking the specific dialects that were best understood by the gathered hearers. These dialects were variations of major human languages. The speaking in unlearned human languages was a miracle produced by the Holy Spirit who had come upon these believers in mighty power. These Galileans spoke in different languages, at least 16 different dialects and probably more. By a sudden and powerful inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the disciples uttered, not of their own minds, but as mouthpieces of the Holy Spirit, the phrases of God in various earthly languages hitherto unknown to them. Jerusalem and Pentecost was the beginning of the expanding witness for the new age. This was the time and place where the stone struck the pond. This began the widening ripple that was to spread outward to the uttermost part of the earth. 
It was to be expected that God would exercise the miraculous apostolic sign gifts at this momentous occasion. It is here that the nature of the gift of tongues is described. This gift was the miraculous ability for men to speak fluently in human languages that they had never learned in order to tell others of the saving grace of God poured out through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. After Pentecost, believers went beyond the walls of Jerusalem to the surrounding countryside of Judea with their witness for the crucified and risen Christ. The Lord had said, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea. The circle of witness expanded to include those Jewish people beyond the confines of Jerusalem. Many believed, and the body of Christ was enlarged. But the Lord's commission continued, and in Samaria. Taking the gospel to Samaria required the crossing of the first boundary line between Jews and a non-Jewish people. We would anticipate that the miraculous sign gifts would be exercised when God's Holy Spirit first baptized these non-Jewish people into the one body of Christ alongside the believing Jews. The crossing of this boundary line, just as Pentecost, was a one-time only event, marking a historic time in the expanding circle of Christian witness. Although there is no direct scriptural mention of speaking with tongues, there is an inference that miraculous signs did accompany the Holy Spirit's baptism of the believing Samaritans. We're told that it was Philip, the former deacon, who became the first evangelist to the Samaritans. The scriptural record says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Philip felt the call of God to carry the gospel to the Samaritans. He went to that polluted city, preaching Christ and him crucified. His preaching was accompanied with a display of miraculous sign gifts. Many Samaritans, probably already touched by the witness of the Samaritan woman who had previously met Jesus at Jacob's well, according to John chapter 4, verses 5 through 30, heard Philip's preaching, saw the miracles, and believed. When they believed, they were baptized in water as an outward sign of their death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. But while Philip alone was preaching in Samaria, God withheld the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean that the norm for this age is spirit baptism subsequent to salvation. The expanding witness for Christ, as recorded in the book of Acts, deals with a very special time in church history. Philip's evangelization of Samaria, for the first time in history, brought a non-Jewish people into intimate fellowship in a body that previously contained only Jews. Outside of Christ, Jews and Samaritans had no dealings with one another. The greatest racial hatred in the history of man existed between these two peoples. Had God sent his Holy Spirit to baptize these new Samaritan converts prior to the arrival of the Lord's disciples, then the Samaritans would have established a body of their own. There would never have been unity between Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians. God withheld the baptism of the Holy Spirit until apostles from Jerusalem were present to demonstrate to all that both Jews and Samaritans were being baptized into a common body. Philip had many Samaritan converts who had received water baptism, and he sent word of this to the apostles in Jerusalem. Now when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Two of those who were among the Lord's inner circle of apostles were sent to Samaria to receive these non-Jewish believers into the church. When the two apostles arrived, they assembled the believers together, and they prayed to the Father that he might send his Spirit upon them. Peter and John, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. After these apostles had prayed, clearly showing that what was to come was done in their authority, they touched each believer in a gesture of fellowship, and the Holy Spirit fell upon each one. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. The record doesn't tell us what sign or signs accompanied the Spirit baptism of the Samaritan disciples. 
However, there must have been some accompanying sign gifts, since all knew immediately that the Holy Spirit had come. We can assume that the signs were similar to those that accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit to the temple in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. As a result of his coming, the Samaritan believers, most likely, spake with other tongues, that is, with other human languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was the second time that the sign gift of tongues was exercised. There is no scriptural record that any Samaritan believer not included in that initial group ever experienced similar miraculous demonstrations of the Spirit's power. From that time on, when a Samaritan believed, he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit immediately as a part of his salvation. The circle of expanding witness had now spread from Jerusalem to Judea and through Samaria. Both Jews and the mixed race of the Samaritans were now included in the one body. The next group to be included were the Gentiles. I see that my time is about gone for today. We'll consider the exercise of the sign gift of tongues in the house of Cornelius and at Ephesus as we continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're continuing with our study of Speaking with Tongues. This series of messages is intended to cover those controversial scriptures that deal with the subject and thus establish a biblical doctrine concerning it. We're looking at those historical times when the sign gift of tongues was exercised to mark the boundaries of the expanding circle of witness for Christ during apostolic times. We've considered Pentecost in Jerusalem and Samaria. We've now come to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea. Let's read Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? The apostle Peter was chosen to first preach the gospel of Christ to a Gentile audience. This, of course, was according to God's previously revealed plan. The record of the Lord's words to Peter is contained in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose shall be loosed in heaven. There were two keys to the kingdom of heaven. The first of these unlocked the kingdom to Jews. And Peter used that key on the day of Pentecost. The second key opened the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles. Peter used that key in the house of Cornelius. God divinely arranged the meeting that took place in this Gentile household. Visions were given both to Cornelius and to Peter, instructing them both in God's will concerning this historic meeting. Peter and the other apostles had been a little slow in crossing that last boundary to the uttermost part of the earth, as the Lord had commanded. They, as loyal Jews, were hesitant to preach the gospel of God's grace to Gentile peoples. Therefore, it was God himself who prompted Peter's use of the second key as he informed Cornelius to send for Peter and as he informed Peter that he was to follow Cornelius' messengers back to Caesarea. Cornelius is described as a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. Cornelius was apparently a proselyte to the Jewish religion. He reverenced the true and living God but he had not yet heard the message of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel for our age. Cornelius had not yet received that so great a salvation. He knew that something was lacking, and he was only too willing to follow the instructions of God's vision. Peter's sermon to Cornelius and his household is recorded in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. This sermon opens with Peter's admission that he now realized that Gentiles were as welcome to the body of Christ as were the Jews. Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. He ended his sermon with the direct proclamation of the gospel, 
And he, Jesus Christ, commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus Christ, which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Cornelius and his household believed the message, and while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. These Gentiles believed the gospel, and they were immediately baptized by the Holy Spirit. Spirit baptism came at the moment of their salvation. An apostle was present to confirm that Gentiles were being invited into the same body that was populated by believing Jews and believing Samaritans. Unlike the Samaritan incident, there was no delay while an apostle was summoned to sanction the acceptance of representatives of this new segment of humanity. The Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Those Jewish men who had accompanied Peter to Caesarea were greatly surprised to see the unmistakable signs of the presence of God's Holy Spirit in these Gentile believers. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jewish believers in Christ had never, until this moment, realized that God would give full and equal status in the body of Christ to Gentile converts. But the demonstration witnessed proved beyond doubt that he had done so. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Here is the second mentioned, but probably the third, manifestation of the miraculous sign gift of the ability to speak in languages that had never been learned. The Greek word glossaeus is again used here to designate human languages. Cornelius and the members of his household were given ability to speak in languages that they had never learned, and they immediately used these languages to magnify God. The Jewish observers who were present here were able to understand the languages spoken since they knew that these Gentiles were glorifying God's name. Probably the languages used, languages foreign to the experience to these Romans, were dialects of Hebrew and Aramaic. The demonstration given convinced all Jewish Christian observers that the Holy Spirit had come to the Roman converts. As a result, then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Notice these new believers were baptized in water after their salvation and after their Holy Spirit baptism. This is the reverse order of that which had taken place in Samaria. However, it's the normal order of things for this age. The baptism of Cornelius and his household had nothing to do with their salvation. It was merely an outward demonstration of the great inward change that had taken place. Now Peter had used his second key to the kingdom. Gentiles had been spirit baptized into the body of Christ. That there was one unified body made up of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles had been adequately demonstrated by the sign gift of tongues. This was God's purpose for that sign gift. The expanding circle of witness was now reaching out toward the uttermost part of the earth. Only one more boundary must be crossed, and that was the boundary separating the Jews in dispersion among the Gentile nations from the influence of the gospel. Many of these Jews had not yet heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was chosen as God's representative to cross that last boundary of the expanding witness. He was the one who first brought the gospel to the Jews who were following John the Baptist, but who had never heard of the sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. The record tells us that it was in Ephesus that this boundary was encountered. Paul, moving from north to south, came to Ephesus, and during his missionary efforts, he met certain disciples of John the Baptist. These disciples were continuing to preach the baptism of repentance that had been the work of John. Paul immediately discerned that something was lacking in the testimony of these men. He opened his conversation with a leading question. He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Paul's question was phrased in a way to find out if there had been a demonstration of miraculous power in their lives, but his real purpose was to learn if they truly knew Christ through trust in the gospel. 
Our English translation of Paul's question is misleading because of the wording used. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? The use of the word since here infers that Paul was asking if they had experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit subsequent to the time of their salvation. Many have felt that this question confirms that Paul anticipated a second work of grace in their lives, and he was asking if this work had yet taken place. That was not the purpose of the question. Paul was trying to find out if these men were actually saved. The literal rendering of Paul's question is, The Holy Spirit did you receive having believed. If these men had received God's Holy Spirit, when they exercised faith in Jesus Christ, then this was evidence of their salvation. But if they had not received him, there was something lacking in their faith, and Paul could proceed with his presentation of the gospel. Having believed, did ye receive the Holy Spirit? The answer given told Paul that they had not yet heard the gospel message. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Since they had never heard of the Holy Spirit, this meant that they had never heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All they knew was the message taught by his forerunner, John the Baptist. John's message was a message of repentance only. The gospel message involves two parts, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John preached only repentance toward God. He did not have the last part of the message. My time for today is almost gone. We'll further consider this passage from Acts chapter 19 as we continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. It's so good to once again greet you in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when I can visit you with another message from God's Holy Word. Today we're continuing our study of the subject, Speaking with Tongues. This has become a controversial subject during the last several years. The purpose for this study is to look at those scriptures associated with the tongues doctrine and to determine the actual teachings of God's word. We've been considering the sign gift of tongues as it was exercised at several historical events in the book of Acts. The last of these events is recorded in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 6. Let's open today's message by reading those verses. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Having learned from his initial question that these men knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, Paul continued to question them. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. These men claimed to have been baptized, but if they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, then their baptism could not have been in the name of Jesus Christ. So he asked them what baptism they had undergone. They immediately replied that it was John's baptism of repentance. It was then that Paul went on to explain their situation. He said, John verily, that is, John truly, baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. In effect, Paul was saying, you've missed something. John's baptism was simply a baptism of repentance, the first step to salvation. John himself told the people that there was another step coming. That second step required faith in the one who was coming, even the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that you must believe on him, put your entire trust in him. That is the Christ, the Savior. That one is the one who will die for your sins, but who will be resurrected for your justification. That one is Christ Jesus. 
Paul made his point, and it was received by all the disciples. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When they had heard the full gospel message, they believed. That was the moment of their salvation. Once they were saved, then they received water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. That was the testimony of their faith in him. It was after they had demonstrated a true work of God in their hearts by submitting to the ordinance of water baptism that God's Spirit came upon them. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them as a gesture of fellowship, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. There was outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit's arrival. These former disciples of John began to speak in languages never learned, and in these new languages they prophesied, that is, they spoke the word of God. God's Spirit immediately made these men preachers and teachers of the Word in languages they had never before known. Once again, the sign gift of tongues was exercised to mark the historic crossing of another boundary by the expanding circle of witness. This was the last such boundary. Therefore, this was the fourth and final time this specific manifestation of the Spirit's power was seen in the earth. The gift of tongues still had further usage in the early church, but the sign gift had played its part. We've seen that Mark's gospel records the Lord's promise of the sign gifts to the apostles as aids to help them in carrying out his great commission. Prominent among these sign gifts was the gift of speaking with tongues and ability to speak in human languages never learned. The book of Acts records four historical events in which the sign gift of tongues was manifested. The first of these events was on the fulfillment of the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church age. The other three events marked the crossing of racial and cultural boundaries in the expanding circle of witness as the gospel went beyond Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church contains the only remaining scriptural references of the continuing existence of a gift of tongues among first century Christians. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle to the Gentiles presents an extensive discussion of the spirituals, that is, the spiritual gifts or the spiritual manifestations. In chapter 12, he defines the gifts and identifies their source. In chapter 13, while explaining that some of the gifts are temporary, he describes the spirit in which they are to be practiced while they're still present in the church. Then in chapter 14, he chides the Corinthian Christians for abusing the gifts bestowed upon them, and he demonstrates their purpose and the part they're to play in church worship services while they're still present. This discussion ends with the commandment, let all things be done decently and in order. In the continuing messages of this series, we'll consider all that the apostle has to say in that section of his Corinthian letter. However, before we go to Paul's discussion of the spirituals, let's consider the general nature of this letter and some of the things it brings out before the spiritual gifts are introduced. First, we should keep in mind that the so-called book of 1 Corinthians is a letter, and it was written according to the letter-writing style of Paul's day. It contains a message that was directed to the people to whom the letter was addressed. In interpreting the message, we must never forget to whom it was directed. The first verse of this epistle is the signature of the writer. The apostle identifies both himself and his office and reminds his readers that his office was of God's appointment. Then he identifies his addressee. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. The letter is addressed first to the assembly of Christian believers, the local church, located in the Greek city of Corinth, but secondarily to all Christians down through this age. Paul makes it clear that the letter is also intended for Christians outside the local Corinthian assembly when he says, to them that are sanctified, and that word means set apart, to them that are set apart in Christ Jesus, that defines Christians, by the way, called saints, called saved ones, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. That includes all Christians down through this age, both theirs, that is, their Lord, and ours, our Lord. This letter is addressed not only to Christians, but it's addressed to Christians in all assemblies through this present age. Therefore, when Paul uses the personal pronouns of the first and second person, he has in view the saved ones at Corinth 
and all saved ones down through this age. What he has to say concerns Corinthian Christians, not Corinthian professors who are not truly saved, and all true Christians, both in his day and throughout the age. The complimentary greetings contained in verse 3 in the form of a prayer goes out specifically to Corinthian believers and additionally to all believers. Concerning those to whom the letter is addressed, Paul says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given unto you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God had been poured out upon the Corinthian assembly. In everything they had been enriched, filled abundantly. They had been enriched in all utterance. This means that they had the ability to prophesy, to give out the word of God orally, in languages appropriate to the listening audience, and these had been bestowed upon the Christian members of this church in great abundance. In order to use this ability, they had also been enriched in all knowledge. That is, God's Holy Spirit had supernaturally given them awareness of God's word and works to aid their prophesying. The purpose of these supernaturally imparted abilities is brought out in verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. The abilities given were both a confirmation of their own salvation and a means of testifying of Christ to others. Their primary function as soldiers of Jesus Christ was to carry the gospel to those about them who were lost in trespasses and sin. Just as were the apostles given the ability to speak in languages they had never learned, so also many of these believers had been given the ability to speak in the many languages of the peoples who were brought together in that cosmopolitan city of Corinth. Notice carefully what Paul says in verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming, and the word coming here is the Greek word revelation, waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul affirms that God had not withheld any gift from the Corinthian Christians. He had bestowed freely all of the gifts of the Spirit in order that these Christians might carry out his purposes there in that wicked city of Corinth. Were these gifts given for any reason other than that stated? Were they given because the Corinthian Christians were more spiritual than the Christians in some of the other first century churches? Were they given because the Corinthian Christians had asked for them in a more fervent way? Paul answers no to all of these questions. As he continues the letter, he points out that there was a great deal of sin and worldly living among nearly all of the members of the church. Just about everything that could be wrong in a church was wrong here. The Corinthians did not display nearly as high a level of spirituality as did the Thessalonian Christians. Yet in that letter, Paul said nothing of spiritual gifts. The gifts did not come because of earnest seeking on the part of the Corinthian individuals, because the apostle later states that the Spirit of God divides and bestows the gifts as he will. Yet in spite of their worldliness, and in spite of their tendency to abuse the gifts because of selfish pride, the apostle Paul said that they come behind in no gift. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll consider God's reasons for bestowing his spiritual gifts upon members of the Corinthian congregation as we continue our study of speaking with tongues on the next broadcast. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. For the Bible. This program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast, Post Office Box 690-008, San Antonio, Texas, 78269.